Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Word up. That. Biblical, biblical, theology, theology, study, the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone that gives some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough, uh-huh. just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian's not optional. Cause when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God the key is following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication, a work of art from Genesis to Revelation, from God's creation, to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11:36. Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes. So clever we behold his endeavors unfold. The greatest, greatest story, story ever, ever told. told. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got See the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our reflections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our depth, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. Welcome to another edition of Theology Matters, and I am your host, Devin Palou, and we have a good uh, show in store for you guys today. It's going to be 
pretty excited, pretty exciting show. I've been wanting to uh, do a show on creation uh, versus evolution for quite some time. Uh, as you guys know, we have uh, Casey Luskin from the Discovery Institute on. Uh, try and get him on about once a month to give kind of a news and views update on the latest things that are going on in the world of the creation or uh, ID and evolution debate. And today we're going to have our guest, Dr. Jay Lyle, with us. And I'm uh, really, really excited to have him on the show. It's, it's, uh, it's been a while we've been trying to get him, and uh, he finally has some, some free time, and so we're going to be able to kind of pick his brain uh, a little bit on some of these issues. So that'll be, that'll be pretty exciting. A um, little housekeeping here kind of to get out of the way. If you have not liked us on our Facebook page, you can go to facebook.com slash theology matters with the Palouse, facebook.com slash theology matters with the Palouse, and if you go on that page, you'll see that we have our, our podcasts uh, of different shows that we've done through, well, we've been doing the show for about two and a half years, and uh, over 13,000 downloads, which is, which is a good sign. We don't make a dime from the show. We don't get paid for it. We don't ask for support for it. Uh, I'm not saying that, you know, that, that we may not in the future, uh, but, uh, you know, everything is is done for free. And so we just want to get the information out there. Uh, with that, you'll see different debates that we have done. So, for example, we have done uh, Protestant versus Catholic on Sola Scriptura. That was one of our most popular debates that we've done. Uh, we've had Matt Dillahoney from the Atheist Experience on twice. Uh, good guy. You know, don't agree with him. Uh, theologically, obviously, I'm not an atheist. Uh, but I appreciate the fact that he's willing to come on and dialogue uh, with other believers. And so um, you can find a couple of those shows. Uh, he did debated John Ferrer, who is a, a classmate of mine at uh, Southern Evangelical Seminary. He did a debate on the existence of God. And then recently uh, we did a debate on uh, abortion, uh, not whether you know, it was biblically acceptable. Uh, but we had Clinton Wilcox from LTI come on, Life Training Institute, and give kind of a secular case um, against abortion. And many people don't know, but you have several uh, atheist groups, for example, that uh, are very pro-life, and uh, they are against abortion. And so, uh, in fact, Matt Delahunty had, had debated, uh, I can't remember her, her name, but it was at one of the uh, atheist conferences, and uh, she, she did a great job. So, with that being said, um, let's do this. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, an article that was recently out by Jay Warner Wallace. And what he does is, is he highlights some of the problems with scientism. And scientism is the view that only that which can be kind of proven through the scientific method is true. And you, you, you see this a lot. You, you see this kind of in the popular level with the, with the atheists, uh, that if it can't be demonstrated through the scientific method, then it really shouldn't even be believed. And I think that that is a 
view that needs to be highly challenged. Uh, I don't think it's a very good view at all. And so what I wanted to do was take a look at this article. I'm having a little bit of technical difficulties, so please bear with me. And there we go. So one of the one of the things we did at uh, Winthrop was we did this, this talk called "Has Science Buried God?" and this was with Rashio Christie. And with this uh, talk, uh, the gentleman who gave the talk, Prem Isaac, uh, devoted a pretty good, uh, significant portion uh, portion to the talk on this issue of scientism. And Dr. Wallace, in his, I don't think he's a doctor, I shouldn't call him Dr. Wallace, but Jane Warner Wallace from Cold Case Christianity, uh, wrote this article called The Danger of Scientism and Over-Reliance on Science. And let me say up front, you know, I love science, um, have always enjoyed learning things, uh, you know, dealing with with science, I collect science textbooks on geology, biology, earth science, all that good stuff. So, the, you know, the the issue is not this kind of false dichotomy of Christians versus science, and it's, it's certainly not that, uh, because I think most Christians, uh, well, I should, maybe not most, but many Christians love science, and there was a time when I would argue that the majority of the scientific disciplines that we have today, many of the founding fathers, were people who, who were trying to find the mind of God. And they were Christians, uh, not just theists, but Christians, but also theists as well. Because they knew that only in a theistic world could you make sense of certain scientific truths. So, for example, the uniformity of nature. Uh, the fact that the scientific laws are going to be uh, regular, right? They're not just going to uh, go willy-nilly for no reason at all. Um, good arguments, again, for the origin of the universe, the fine-tuning of the universe, the design of the universe. And then you get into other issues such as biology and the origin of life and origin of information. And as you see, there's just been a real explosion so to speak, of um, you know, with the scientific technology uh, and that that we now have. Uh, you know, you have uh, Mike Behe coming out with his book and uh, Darwin's Black Box and it was around the mid-90s and kind of that whole uh, creation or ID movement really, really came around that time and you really see uh, some of the powerful works that have come out from that, but what you see is uh, a definite um, a definite uh, with the scientific technology improving, you see new breakthroughs. So, for example, things in the cell that we didn't know before, information theory, um, irreducible complexity, some of those things. Now, of course, evolutionists have responses to those. And uh, and that's fine. That's good. Um, I think that's obviously the best way to to um, to kind of improve and, and sharpen our skills is to be challenged by some of these uh, some of these issues. And I, I don't think the Christian uh, some some view people hold that uh, if evolution is true, then God uh, is somehow cannot exist. I think that is just a false view. 
Um, I think I don't think evolution is true, of course, but um, there are theistic evolutionists. There are people who believe that God used evolution to create the universe. Now, you may have some theological and scientific problems. You know, that's fine. Uh, but the issue of evolution, and when I talk to many evolutionists, even when I'm talking about the origin of life, they immediately get angry and say, no, we don't start at the, you don't start at the origin of life. That's different. We start at, uh, you know, the, the complexity of life and when life past the origin of life, and that's that's what evolution is dealing with. So if that's the case, that's fine. Uh, but then you can't also argue for evolution to disprove the existence of God. Because before you get life on Earth, we have to deal with the origin of the universe. Where does the origin of the universe come from? We know uh, that space, time, and matter came into existence. Now, Christians are going to disagree on the time for example, you're going to have old-earth creationists, and we'll talk about this with Dr. Weil, you're going to have old-earth creationists uh, who are going to believe that the universe is uh, right in line with, with, the, with the mainstream uh, kind of the scientific view is that um, it's around 13.7, 13.8 billion years old. And then you have young-earth creationists who believe that the, the uh, earth is uh, between 6 to, to 10,000 years old. And so it's, you know, it's it's definitely it's it's an interesting debate as far as the time, uh, but I think sometimes we can miss the boat. I don't think the issue that we need to be kind of struggling so hard with is the time, uh, is when there was uh, the creation, but rather is was there a creation? I think that's that's kind of more important uh, issue is is was there a creation? Uh, because you know, Christians can debate those issues kind of in-house, so to speak, on those on the evidence for whether a young earth or an old earth. But I think the, the important thing is we all need to come to agreement that, yeah, the earth was created. And uh, people like Dr. William Lane Craig have done so much work on the Coulomb cosmological argument in demonstrating that uh, whatever begins to exist has a cause and the universe began to exist, therefore the universe had a, has a cause. That's that's important. That's that's kind of what we need to to hold on to. That's what we need to maintain. And so, again, some of those uh, issues are important um, as far as kind of in-house debates. Uh, but I would argue that uh, we need to kind of stick to the main things when dealing with these issues. It was there a creator? Was the universe finely tuned? Those type of things are, are where really the debate, I would argue, needs to be focused. Now, of course, someone might argue, well, uh, if you hold to an old earth and you're giving up um, inerrancy, and in fact, uh, Ken Ham has recently accused Norm Geisler of that, and uh, it, it's a funny thing, because I myself am a young earth creationist, I hold to the young earth view, but I don't appreciate a lot of the... Um, dialogues that sometimes comes with this. I, I, I know Dr. Geisler personally, and I know a lot of the old earth creationists personally, and while I don't agree with them at all in any way, shape, or form, um, as far as th those issues of the age of the earth, whether or not the flood was local or global, yeah, I'm going to fall into the, to the young earth view on that. Uh, I don't view these guys like Norm Geisler as compromisers. I don't think that's what's going on at all. 
these guys are some of the greatest defenders of the Christian faith. And so I think we need to be careful with that. I think we need to watch our watch our tone with that, and we have to tread lightly there. Uh, it's okay to have a view, and it's okay to be committed to that view, um, but we don't want to, um, you know, we don't want to malign others' character or intent, uh, etc. As far as not being, you know, Christians or uh, or that, because that we we have some disagreements on the the age of the earth, and I know that. You know, they're gonna. Many will say, "Well, it's it's about the authority of the Bible," and I get that. But I would just submit that people like, you know, Dr. Geisler believe that they're it's important to to recognize the authority of the Bible. So with that said, let's look at some of these some of these things that uh, Dr. Wallace points out for us. He says, "There's many things um, that we know without the benefit of science." <clears throat> So again, this kind of this article is dealing with this this topic of well, you can't know anything uh, unless it can be demonstrated through science, and that is the view again that uh, uh, Mr. Wallace and others will call scientism. And what he does is he he also points out that that view itself is self-refuting. If we say, for example, that unless we we can prove um, things by you know, the scientific method or by science, that it's it's useless or it's not true, that very claim itself is not a claim that can be be run through a test tube, can it? If I say the only to- only that which is true is that which can be demonstrated through science, well can that can that statement, can that proposition be demonstrated through science? No, it cannot. So this was kind of some of the problems with A.J. Ayer, with logical positivism. It was a self-refuting view. So right off the bat, we'd say scientism, if that's kind of the, the definition that's given, you know, you can't know anything apart from science, well, then it fails. It fails to meet its own test because that very proposition is uh, something that <laughs> doesn't even meet its own, its own claim. So let's look at a few of these things here. First of all, you have logical and mathematical truths. And he points out, these must be accepted as foundational presuppositions in order to engage in any scientific study. So we clearly can't use science to determine the logic and math, uh, to determine the logic and math facts that precede science. So there's, yeah, there's certain things, logical and mathematical truth, laws of logic, things that, you know, I can't prove through the scientific method, and I have to use in order to use the scientific method. Metaphysical truths, right? Some truths about the nature of the world, such as whether or not the external world is real in the first place, cannot be determined through the use of science. See, this is the thing that a lot of people don't recognize is most of the presuppositions of science are resting on philosophical foundations. Right, so this idea that uh, you know there's other minds, for example. Well, there's been great debate through the history of philosophy about that. Um, you know, you have uh, Rene Descartes, and he really, you know, if you read his some of his work, um, it really was trying to get to this point of where we can actually know anything at all. And that uh, it wasn't just God deceiving him, an evil God deceiving his mind. How do you know that you're not just a brain uh, typed uh, or hooked up to a vat, so to speak, 
right? How do, how do you know that? You can say, well, I can test it with my five senses. Well, yeah, but that's, again, that's circular. You're using the senses to prove the senses. Uh, and so, again, I think that they're reasonable assumptions. I'm not saying that they're not reasonable assumptions. I think they are. But the point is, is that uh, they're not they're not truths. They're not principles that can be proved through the scientific method. Third, how about moral and ethical truths? You know, science cannot tell us what someone ought to do, right? For example, you look at the Holocaust, right? You can't get, you don't get from science what ought to happen. They can tell you if you gas people with certain chemicals, the skin will peel off, they'll burn, and they'll die. The science cannot tell you whether you should or should not do that. That's an ethical claim. So again, uh, dealing with some of the philosophical uh, foundations, science rests on there. Let's look at some of the other. You have the aesthetic truths, right? Science cannot help us to determine or to judge what is beautiful or what is ugly. Right, again, that's, that's kind of outside the realm of science. It's not really a scientific issue. Uh, historical truths. Now, this, you know, I find this very interesting because a lot of people, and I've, I've heard different uh, uh, atheist radio show hosts, and uh, they'll say things like, uh, well, you know, you can't prove through science that the, that the resurrection uh, happened. And so they will reject it. They will reject it a priori because you can't demonstrate it through science. Well, the resurrection is a historical category. It's a historical truth. It's not a scientific truth. I can't um, I can't run that through the lab because it, it's it's something that happened two thousand years ago. Um, so you, what 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 normally happens is people will a priori reject uh, the idea of the resurrection because they reject miracles. Miracles can't happen. The resurrection is a miracle, therefore the resurrection can't happen. But again, I think if you, you start with kind of giving arguments for the existence of God and showing, well, God exists, God created the universe, and if God exists and God created the universe, then miracles uh, are at least possible. And I think that's when Dr. Wallace goes on to to talk about that a little bit, where um, that's where I think Christianity, in a lot of senses, is uh, able to offer more. Because uh, philosophical naturalism, the only game in town is materialism. As Carl Sagan said, the universe is all there is, was, or ever will be. Well, Christianity can offer, offer more than that. It can, it can look, where does the evidence lead? Maybe, maybe the evidence uh, is good for a miracle, right? Uh, sure, there's things that I cannot test through the scientific method. I can't test a miracle through that. But I can't test the origin of the universe through, through the scientific method. I can't test the origin of life, the origin of consciousness. These are things that happened one time and can't be reproduced and can't be repeated. So... I just think that, uh, you know, at times it can be special pleading, so to speak, uh, for, the, for the naturalist. So I think the Christian can, can offer more of a wide uh, array, so to speak, uh, a wide variety of, of options. 
And so, you know, with that said, let's uh, we'll go ahead and take a quick break because I know that we are going to be having our guest here soon. And uh, as we do, we will be back, and we're we're going to look at some of these some of these issues of creation evolution. Uh, again, you know, if you have uh, maybe you're a homeschooler or uh, you have used some of Dr. Wild's stuff in the past, uh, let us know. Uh, give us a call. I'm sure he would love to hear from you. And uh, we'll, we're going to go ahead and take a break for a few minutes. I'm having a couple technical difficulties, and we'll take this break, and then we will be back. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. Apologist. If you had one minute to be able to untap for the audience, what about those who've never heard about Jesus Christ? How does intelligent design differ from a theological doctrine of creation? How do you answer that? Well, creation is always about the source of being, where does everything come from? And uh, one, one way you might, might illustrate that is a joke that was making the rounds on the internet some years back where scientists come to God and they say, we can do everything you can do. God says, oh, that's interesting, show me. And then they say, well, we can, uh, we can create humans from scratch. We can take some dust and, and as they're about to continue, God says, well, wait a second, get your own dust. Okay, now that's what creation is. It's giving being to existence. Carpenters take pre-existing materials. They're designers. And design is about taking pre-existing materials and finding patterns there which point you to intelligence. So uh, another way I illustrate this is you imagine a pan balance. And you've got a veil that includes one side. And you've got one pound weight on this side, which is up. How much weight is on this other side? Well, you know, you know it's more than one. It could be two pounds. It could be five pounds. It could be a million pounds. And that's how it is with intelligent design. We know that there's an intelligence behind the things that we see in nature, and things in biology and cosmology. But getting to an infinite, personal, transcendent, creator God of Christianity is not something the logic of intelligent design can take us to. But it's friendly to Christian theism in a way that uh, atheism, uh, the, the Dar Darwinian evolution, and ev uh, materialistic evolutionary theories are not. So it gives you a lot. It takes you some way. You know, it's closer to the kingdom. But if you want the gospel, you're going to have to go to the gospel. For those of you that want to learn more, this book, The Design Revolution, was very helpful to me, amongst many of his other books. It's often claimed that evolution is simply change over time. And since change over time can be seen everywhere, then evolution is obviously true. But highly qualified creation scientists say there is much more to it than that. For evolution to have turned particles into people, simple change over time is not enough. A special kind of change is needed. That is, naturally occurring change that adds new genetic instructions. No one has seen this special kind of change happen. Darwin's finches, peppered moths and adapting bacteria are all examples of naturally occurring change. But not one of them shows the addition of new genetic instructions. Not one of them writes any brand new genetic code specifying how to make some new complex feature, such as feathers for lizards, for example. And since codes and programs cannot write themselves, there must have been a designer for all living things. To find out more from Creation Ministries International, visit our website, creation.com. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. One minute apologist. If you had one minute to be able to unpack 
for the audience. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. My question to you is, are Mormons Christians? Well, if a Christian is somebody who believes certain basic doctrines, uh, actually there are 14 of them. They're found in the Apostles' uh, Creed. They're found in the Bible as the basis uh, for the gospel. You have to believe in one God, that there's three persons in one God. You have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus was a human. Man's a sinner. Jesus died for our uh, sins. You have to be justified by faith. If you line up those essential doctrines, there are about 14 of them, you'll see that Mormons deny most of them. So the question is, can you be a Christian and deny most of the fundamental Christian doctrines? And the answer is no. Uh, could you be a Buddhist and deny most of the fundamental Buddhist doctrines? Could you be a Muslim and deny uh, that uh, God is Allah and Muhammad was his prophet and that the Quran is the word of God? Obviously not. Uh, you can claim to be, but you aren't really because it doesn't correspond uh, to the facts. So Mormons are not uh, Christians. Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christians because they all deny crucial, fundamental Christian doctrines, which makes them not Christian. People say, well, but they believe in God. Yeah, but which God? Uh, it's a finite God. It's a progression of God. It's a form of polytheism. They believe in Jesus. Yeah, but what Jesus? Uh, is Jesus the brother of Lucifer? That's what Mormons believe. Right. Uh, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is Michael the Archangel. Well, can he be saved by believing in an angel? Uh, Michael the Archangel? Obviously not. So they claim to be Christian, but they don't prove to be Christian. Welcome back. Appreciate you guys hanging with us. And uh, that was Dr. Geisler there at the end. You hear talking about the differences between uh, Mormonism and Christianity. And, uh, you know, as far as the apologetics worlds, uh, very few have influenced me, like the work of, uh, of Dr. Geisler. So uh, he just wrote a new book called The Atheist Fatal Flaw. And uh, just got sent a copy of that, and uh, looks like a great book. Should be out in June. It's a little book. It's not a big, massive tune, uh, but uh, deals with a lot of these issues that we talk about on the show. So, with that being said, I'm going to go ahead and bring our guest on, and uh, have been really looking forward to to doing the show. And uh, I used to uh, use a lot of Dr. Wiles uh, work uh, as a home being homeschooled. And a lot of his curriculum is, is really amazing. So Dr. Weil uh, received his Ph.D. in chemistry from the University of Rochester and received uh, many awards for excellence in teaching and research. He's also presented numerous lectures on the topics of nuclear chemistry, Christian apologetics, homeschooling, and creation versus evolution. He's published over 30 articles on this topic and is nationally recognized in peer-reviewed journals. He has nine books to his credit, uh, most of which belong to the award-winning Exploring Creation series, which I was just talking about, with junior high and high school science courses. So we are super excited to have our guest on, uh, Dr. Jay Weil. Are you there? Yes, it's a pleasure to be here. Oh, really nice to have you. Really appreciate you being willing to come on the show and let us pick your brains. Sure. 
Did I did I leave anything out of the intro there? Oh, uh, my PhD is actually in nuclear chemistry. Uh, you know, PhDs are a lot you know a lot more narrow than the wide topics. So yeah, that uh, PhD in nuclear chemistry. Wow, that's that's great. So. Let me ask you, uh, maybe just tell us a little bit about your, your background of, of how you grew up and how you came to the to the Christian faith. Were you were you brought up in a Christian home or uh, I was brought up in a in a home that went to church uh occasionally and so forth, but uh yeah, I wouldn't really call it a Christian home when I was young. No. Uh I, I actually uh, in high school I was an atheist, pretty strong atheist. Um um and uh but I was brought up during this time where it was real popular like when you were in second grade you took a test and that supposedly said what you were going to be able to do for the rest of your life uh and so then your education was sort of tailored to what this test said you were supposed to do uh so i was supposed to show real talent in science so i was tracked toward science uh, and the more i learned about science the less tenable the atheist position became uh and so i eventually left atheism and believed in some sort of creator, but I didn't really know who the creator was. Um, and it wasn't until I started, you know, reading from many different religions and reading the people who sort of argued for those religions and so forth that I came to the decision that the creator is the God of Christianity. Um, and so I became a Christian. So, you know, I started out as an atheist, became some sort of theist, and then eventually became a Christian. How, how old were you when, because you said that you had kind of, as you started studying science, this kind of put you in, in deism or some type of vague theism. How old were you around that time? Uh, Sixteen. Sixteen, wow. That is really amazing because it's, it seems to be so many times the other, uh, the other way around is when you have uh, people that are really kind of delving into the sciences and have not been brought up in a Christian home. A lot of times they kind of go towards atheism, so that's that's a really neat uh, neat story that you're able to uh, to to come out of that. Well, I guess you know I'm not sure that's really true. I, you know, obviously I don't know of any studies or anything that have been done on this, but you know uh, I find an enormous, especially especially in physics more than anything else, an enormous number of scientists who acknowledge some sort of creator. Uh, okay. In fact, you know, there the the number of scientists I know who are atheists is very small. Now, the number of scientists I know who are Christians is also very small. But there's this wide range of scientists I know who accept some sort of creator, probably in some sort of deist or very weak theist position. Uh, but yeah, so I'm not sure exactly how studying science ends up affecting uh, your belief in God. But you know, for me, I, I, it turned me around because the more you look at science the more clear it became that this is a that the, the universe is a put-up job i mean there's just no way random chance could produce it yeah i wonder let me ask you this do you think it, it is is it different at all maybe within the different scientific disciplines i wonder like i said i don't know the studies i just wonder if maybe in physics or astronomy more people more more of the scientists would be theists compared to maybe say like biology or chemistry or something But, uh, yeah, uh, looks like we have lost our caller. So <laughs> imagine he will be calling back here in a moment. But, uh, yeah, you know, as, as you see that um, kind of the, the mantra that is put forth uh, a lot of the time that, 
you can't be an intelligent scientist and uh, believe in the existence of God or a creationist. Uh, it's just false. It's just false. As we were uh, posting this show today in various Facebook forums and and uh, having people let people know the show is on, you had some of those comments. So, hey, Doctor Wild, we lost you there somehow. Yeah, I'm not sure what now. happened there. I'm I'm on a landline, so I'm not sure how it got okay. dropped. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I was just, so uh, you were asking about the different different disciplines. Yeah, yeah. I was just curious if what your thoughts were on that. Well, you know, I do think that, for example, if I just look at the number of – and this is just my own experience, and I don't know how valid my own experience is to generalize from, but in my experience, there's a large number, larger number of atheists among the biologists than there are among okay. the physicists and chemists. Uh, and, and I think, you know, probably part of that is because biology is so steeped, you know, in this naturalistic – Worldview that you sort of get indoctrinated into it more heavily than the physicists and the chemists do. Yeah, and I guess I'm thinking, and, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but with the biologists, I guess that they're thinking as as long as they can account somehow for life, then that would do away with the need for for a creator. And um, you know, one of the things that, that's I, was, I was pointing certainly possible. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, that's certainly possible. I, you know, and this may, I don't know, this may be more my bias than anything else. I think, you know, Ernst Rutherford said all science is either physics or stamp collecting. Um, <laughs> and, because, and his point is physicists are the ones who really understand nature. Everybody else just catalogs things. Um, wow. And so <laughs> I think from my personal bias, I do think physicists and to some extent chemists have a better grasp of how nature works than biologists. Uh, and the better you grasp how nature works, the harder it is to believe that it all came about by chance. Sure, that's that's good. That's that's very good. Um, and and just, I guess before we get started a little bit here, um, you you have other interests in other fields of apologetics uh, as well. Is that correct? I've, I've been to your blog a few times and have seen you have different uh, different articles on on topics up. You kind of have a broad interest in apologetics, would you say? Yeah, I do, uh, and I'm not, you know, my specialty is science, obviously, so when I start talking outside of science, I become less and less, you know, authoritative or whatever. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, because I, I sort of was argued into the kingdom, I tend to, uh, you know, I tend to appreciate a broad range of apologetics, including historical apologetics and philosophy and things like that. That's great. Yeah, that's one of the one of the reasons I really enjoy your your blog, as you do, you have a, a good wide variety uh, in that. And, and uh, what, tell us the name of your blog. Uh, the name of the blog is Proslogian, which comes from uh, uh, St. Anselm's book. Uh, um, uh, he wrote a book pro called Proslogian, which is in English is best translated on the uh, discourse on the on the being of God or the discourse on the nature of God, let's say. Uh, and uh, I've always was... Well, whereas I'm not sure Anselm was a really good philosopher, he was at least very original in his thinking. <laughs> and I yeah. really appreciate original thinking. Uh, so, for example, uh, I've read every one of C.S. Lewis's books. I don't think he's much of a, a philosopher. You know, and I get in trouble when I say that a lot among Christians. <laughs> I think he's a rather poor philosopher, but he's an incredible original thinker. <laughs> and yeah. that's what I appreciate about him. Oh, that's good. Yeah, we've... Uh... 
we've been doing a series of shows with Dr. Sadler, who's a philosophy instructor um, at Marquise College, and we've done, I think, two shows on St. Anselm. So for, for our viewers yeah. out there who may be wanting a little more on that, be sure to check that out. So, Well, I guess uh, let's, I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and, and, and ask you, why should Christians really even care about the creation, evolution, debate. It seems that there's so many different flavors of sure. positions and there seems to be so much debate. Why why should we even care about this issue? Well I think there are three reasons every Christian should care uh about the origins debate. And then there's a fourth reason that only some Christians should care about. Uh the biggest reason I think is the way you uh read the first chapters of Genesis, just one through eleven, let's say affects the way you interpret the rest of the Bible. I mean, whether you recognize it or not, every Christian develops what we call a hermeneutic, which is a way of interpreting what you're reading. And the way you decide to interpret the first 11 chapters of Genesis strongly affects the way you're going to read the rest of the book, because it is the beginning. It lays a foundation. So I think, you know, you need to be familiar with the origins debate so that you know how it's affecting your theology. Um, number two, there are a lot of people, now I wasn't one of these people, I was very interested in science, but I really didn't care much about the origins debate. When I was an atheist, I, even as an atheist, I knew evolution was nonsense. So, you know, I was an atheist who just believed there must be a better solution for how we all got here than evolution, because even back then it was nuts. Um, so, uh, you know, but I wasn't like that, but a lot of people are. Oh, there are a lot of people out here where origins is a big issue on whether they believe. And so, you know, we're called to be witnesses to all nations, which means we need to be witnesses to everybody. And so I would think that means that we need to be able to be witnesses to people who care about the origins debate. So we need to learn the origins debate so we can be good witnesses to them. And third, you know, God wants us to believe true things, and there's only one true position on uh, on the origins. <coughs> I don't claim to know it for sure. I think I, I have the most reasonable position, but I can't say for sure it's the true position, but I know there is a true position. Um, and so I think, you know, God wants us to believe true things. So that's something all Christians should, should worry about when it comes to origins. However, in addition, if you're a Christian who is interested in science in any way, then origins is really important because just as it affects the way you read the Bible, it affects the way you do science. Uh, and I personally think there's a lot of areas of science that have been held back by the blinders of evolution. And if we could pull those blinders off, some areas of science would make much better progress. And so if you care about the progress of science at all, you should be worried about the origins debate. Wow. That's, that is really amazing. I know, you know, I, I grew up in a home. My grandfather was, uh, was an atheist. My, my parents were, uh, were uh, actually came out of Mormonism and, my father was a Assembly of God pastor, but this was the issue for me growing up. Um, I just didn't understand how you know how do how do dinosaurs fit in, how do cavemen fit into the Bible, these type of things. And my parents just had no idea um, mm. where to even look for answers on this. And it was through the the creation message. It was it was that, and then it was a it was primarily a debate between Habermas and Flew on the resurrection that God used to save me, but then this issue really changed my life. And I remember talking with my grandfather 
um, like six months before he died uh, on this and just giving them some of the basic answers uh, that he had been asking for a long time and just seeing that evolution wasn't the only game in town. And, uh, you know, he actually uh, received Christ and I prayed with him over the phone. So I think uh, a lot of times we don't realize how much our views can really affect our, our thinking, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So let me ask you, what are what are some of the various uh, Christian positions on this topic? I know it's not very monolithic. No, it's not. And what's interesting is it's never been monolithic. The church has never been monolithic in its view on origins. Uh, you know, we have some people have this idea, and I think it's unfortunately it is promoted by uh, some of the people who agree with me, but it's wrong. Uh, the church has never been unified on the details surrounding creation. There's always been a real diversity of opinion. Even as early as 100 AD, you had church fathers like Origen promoting a figurative interpretation of Genesis, not a historical one. Uh, by the time the medieval church comes around, in around 1100, uh, the view of interpreting vast swaths of Genesis, including all of the first 11 chapters, allegorically was widespread. Uh, yeah. James Hannum wrote an excellent book called The Genesis of Science where he talks about this. So <clears throat> the, the idea that the church has ever been monolithic on origins is just not, not reasonable. <laughs> it's certainly not supported by history. So, you know, we have a diversity of opinions in the church today, and the details of those opinions are different from what they were in the 1100s or the 300s. But the commonality is there's always been a diversity of opinions. Um, but yeah. today, today you could say there are three broad classes of uh, beliefs in origin, and there are lots of sub, subclasses. In, but the three broad classes are young earth creationism, old earth creationism, and theistic evolution. So we'll start with the one I am. I'm a young earth creationist. Uh, so young earth creationists believe that uh, the, all of Genesis is history, including Genesis 1 through 11. They're history. And so they should be read as history. So when it says God created the earth in six days. That is six days, and those days are solar days. Now, they may not be 24 hours because we don't know how fast the earth was spinning back then, but they were solar days. Right. Um, and we believe that the, um, the, the genealogies in the Old Testament are accurate and complete. And so when you put that together, and we believe that the flood was worldwide and catastrophic, when you put all that together, you get a very young earth on the order of six, ten thousand 10,000 years old, something like that. Uh, and so those, those are the young earth creationists. Uh, the old earth creationists believe that Genesis is history, and they interpret it historically, but they use legitimate alternate translations of certain words to come up with a different view. Uh, so, for example, they believe God created in six days, but the Hebrew word for day legitimately can mean many things, including vast eons of time. Uh, so the old earth creationists believe that the earth was created over six vast eons of time. Um, and so the creation happened slowly. Um, and also the order is correct in the old earth creationist mind, but it doesn't correspond necessarily to what scientists uh, call these things. So when it says plants were made on day three, plants don't necessarily mean plants that grow on land. They might, it might just mean photosynthetic organisms, which is what plants basically are. So, you know, maybe the initial thing that was created on day three was algae or something like that. But in any event, these are all legitimate, legitimate translations. So they believe it's history, 
but they don't believe that the same kind of translation, the same kind of interpretation that young earthers do. When it comes to the flood, they take legitimate alternate translations of certain words to conclude that the flood was local rather than global, so it affected just the lands around Israel. And so as a result, the old earth creationists can basically believe the standard interpretation of geology, that the earth is billions of years old, that the layers of rock were formed slowly over these billions of years, and the fossils they contain represent the kind of creatures that were living during the eon in which they were being, the rocks were being formed. So those are the old earth creationists. But what neither the old earth creationists nor the young earth creationists believe in is any kind of evolution on the grand scale. Uh, neither young earth nor old earth creationists believe that a basic kind of creature can evolve into another basic kind of creature. Um, that's something that's left for the theistic evolutionists, which is the third class uh, of belief today. The theistic evolutionists believe in the standard view of geology and the standard view of biology that life started probably as a single simple organism or maybe a couple of simple organisms and all the diversity of life we see today descended through evolutionary processes to produce what we see today. Uh, now the theistic evolutionists, some of them believe God took a direct hand in guiding evolution so that it produced people and once it produced the physical form of people then God imparted to this physical form of a person, the image of God, which then made him a, a human being. Uh, and that was, for example, what C.S. Lewis believed. C.S. Lewis was an evolutionist, but believed in the end that once God used the physical for the process of evolution to create the physical form of man, then he supernaturally gave us the image of, of God so to become humans. Um, but some theistic evolutionists don't even believe that. They believe that God just set it all up so it would inevitably produce human beings as we are today. Uh, so they still believe God created, but not nearly as supernaturally as the old earthers or the young earthers believe. Okay, great. Um, among Christians, what, is, what, you, what would you say is the most popular view today? I guess it depends here on how you define Christian. If we're talking about evangelical Christians, for example, I suspect, and I don't really know for sure, but I suspect the plurality, not the majority, but the larger group, the largest of the three groups, is old earth creationists. Uh, I think, you know, there's a mystique surrounding the age of the earth. Lots of people want to believe in a billions of years old earth. So old earth creationism is the more comfortable position for a lot of evangelicals. Probably young earth creationism is next, and theistic evolution is probably last. But if I just talk about Christians as a whole, which include like Roman Catholics and things like that, then in the end I would say theistic evolution wins. Uh, because you get out of evangelical circles, and most Christians uh, are willing to uh, subscribe to the standard view of science with just, you know, God thrown in in certain places. Right. Well, I, you know, one thing I really appreciate you about, about you is you do kind of tread lightly uh, on some of these issues, and I agree with you. I think uh, the young earth creationist view is correct, uh, but it's not a hill I'm willing to die on. <laughs> uh, I do well, believe yeah, that. I think, I yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, the, I, I think the, the reason I've come to this position, uh, you know, everybody wants to 
believe their position is correct, and I really do believe my position is correct. I hold to it very strongly. At the same time, because I did spend some time learning church history, I've really been, you know, uh, uh, affected by the fact that the church is all, this has been a debate constantly in the church, and even back before the church, if you look at the Hebrew theologians from before Christ, they didn't have a monolithic view of creation either. (laughs) So in the end, even if you think about, you know, uh, Judaism before Christianity, and then add Christianity in later, nowhere do you find a monolithic position on creation. So in my mind, it's rather arrogant to think that now in this century we finally figured it out and we know what's for sure the correct answer yeah and i think it's not just creation either it's like there seems to be a wide variety of views on all these issues of of, of calvinism arminianism yep. eschatology uh mm-hmm. the gifts of the holy spirit i mean i think we'd like to say yeah there's a definite position, but I think you're right. It just That's just not the case. I think it's because some of these issues are not as clear as, as maybe we would like them to be. Um, right, and in fact, you know, I do think uh, that's why the creeds existed historically. Historically, the creeds existed specifically to say, here are the hills you have to die on. You know, here are the right. things that are fundamental to Christianity. You know, everything else, you know, is you know, fair game. It's stuff we don't know for sure. It all depends on how you read Scripture and so forth. You know, and so, you know, if you think about what's in the major creeds, the details of creation aren't there. What's there is God created. You know, that's the hill you have to die on. Uh, But all the other variations, you know, are fodder for reasonable, good theological discussion. Yeah, that's, that's one of the things I was talking about before you had called um, was uh, Dr. Geisler, who's uh, just been a real influence on my life. Um, you know, he was he was being charged with with um, kind of denying inerrancy because of not holding the young earth view, and I I just think those kind of things are dangerous because you have guys like a, like Dr. Geisler or or other some of just the most amazing apologists alive today. That yeah, they may hold to a uh, an old Earth, but they, they it's not like they're arguing for evolution or some of these other issues. I mean, they are they are steadfast on biblical truth, even though it's you know it's kind of a different maybe interpretation than us. So that's that's where I would just like to see some a little more humility and and respect amongst both sides. Oh yeah, that in, I, you in, know. And there's plenty of arrogance on both sides. You know, the young earth creationists, a lot of young earth creationists, for example, say that if you don't believe in young earth creationism, you're not accepting the authority of Scripture. That's clearly nonsense. There are people throughout the history of Christianity who fully accepted the authority of Scripture who weren't young earth creationists. But at the same time, there are a lot of old earth creationists who will tell you that if you – uh, if you do, if you don't believe in evolution, you're denying the natural revelation. You know, there's God's special revelation in the Bible, and then His natural revelation in the earth, and you're actually ignoring the natural revelation, which is just as bad as ignoring one book in the Bible. Uh, yep. And you know, I actually had an old Earth creationist say that I was sinning. He was nice enough to say it wasn't an unpardonable sin, but to say that I because <laughs> I was a young Earth creationist, I'm sinning because I uh, and I'm ignoring the natural revelation. Because, of course, the natural revelation tells us there's an old earth. And then, of course, that's just as nonsensical as what the young earth creationists are saying about the authority of God's word. So, you know, in the end, there's a lot of arrogance on both sides. <laughs> yeah, I think it's. I think it would do much better if people just kind of realized, you know, it's 
it's it's brilliant men and women on both sides trying to reconcile mm-hmm. scripture and science, put them together, and uh, yeah, you know, you can certainly have a view. I have a view, you have a view, uh, but you know, to, to start charging people with heresy and this type of stuff is kind of a dangerous path to go on. I don't think we want to. Oh, absolutely. Work on that. So let's uh, let's let's kind of look at some of the, I guess some of the nitty gritty here. Uh, the origin of the universe. Um, with the creation evolution debate, kind of give us the the naturalist uh, naturalistic evolutionist view of the origin of the universe. Well, you know that's an interesting question because science has radically changed its position on that relatively recently in terms of science, anyway. Um, up until 1850, so from the ancient Greeks all the way up until 1850, um, it was considered scientific fact that the universe is eternal. It's always been here and always will be, that there was no origin to the universe. Uh, that, was the, that was not even considered debatable among scientists. Uh, but then, of course, uh, Clausius, uh, Rudolf Clausius in 1850 published his paper on the second law of thermodynamics, which basically said, while the total energy of the universe is constant, the amount of energy available to do work is constantly decreasing. Uh, so that means the universe had to have a beginning. Uh, and scientists fought this for a long time, from 1850 to the, really the early 1900s. Scientists hated this idea that the universe had a beginning. Einstein himself said the idea that the universe had a beginning smacks of theology, and he didn't want that in his science. Um, so, uh, but, you know, uh, obviously the bulk of the data eventually weighed science down, and science came to the conclusion that the universe did have a beginning. So the idea that the universe had a beginning, while it's been constant throughout you know, Judaism and Christianity, it's a relatively new thing in science. It's about 100 years old, not much more than that, okay. uh, at least in terms of a broad consensus. Uh, but you know, from the naturalist standpoint, uh, the universe had a beginning because you know, in this vast sea of particles and antiparticles that make up nothing, um, there was enough of a fluctuation that caused a large amount of uh, matter to come into existence uh, and not be annihilated by its anti-components, uh, and that caused the the Big Bang, which um, you know made the universe expand and and so forth. So it was sort of a you know a, a random fluctuation um, in nothing uh, that produced the universe. And of course, as time has gone on, and we've learned more about how finely tuned the universe is for life, in the end, most naturalists have tried to develop this idea that our universe really is just one of many, that these kind of fluctuations happened and created lots and lots of many universes within this vast sea of nothing. Uh, and we're just the one of the universes that happens to have the right conditions for life. And there are gajillions of other universes that have no life and nobody to talk about them because they don't have the right parameters or the right conditions for life. How, how, how as, uh, I guess, as, and I'll let you kind of define some of, uh, I know because the, the different creationist views, I guess, will probably have, uh, well, I know they have different views of the origin, but uh, with the multiverse, how does the creationist respond to, to, to a multiverse you know, argument? Well, this creationist responds by saying that this is an incredibly <laughs> ad hoc solution. 
to a big problem. I mean, you know, uh, uh, my argument has always been, let's suppose you're sentenced to death, you're put in front of a firing squad, uh, and the, uh, you know, you see all 12 guns point at you, they gave you the blindfold, you hear all 12 guns go off, but you're still alive. Now, the naturalist explanation is, well, it just happens that all 12 of those marksmen missed, <laughs> because obviously we're still here. So obviously all 12 must have missed. I would say it's way too much of a coincidence for these 12 marksmen at point-blank range to mix me, miss me. There must be some explanation that this was a designed occurrence, that you know somebody replaced the bullets with blanks or they were all ordered to shoot away at the last minute or something like that. There must be some you know, purposeful explanation. Uh, so you know, to me, any kind of solution that tries to get around the, the, the fact that everything seems so fine-tuned to life seems to be a, a real ad hoc uh, explanation. Um, and you know, based on what we know about how well it fine-tuned the universe is for life, even if you had you know, gajillions of universes out there, it's still not clear any one of them would have all the right parameters for life. Uh, so in the end, you have to almost – and yeah, there's, a, there's a philosopher by the name of Bradley Monton who's an atheist philosopher, but he brings up an excellent point on all of this. He says no matter what escape mechanism – he's still an atheist, but he says no matter what escape mechanism you're using to explain the fact that everything seems so fine-tuned, in the end, you've got to rest on infinities. Either there are an infinite number of universes so that eventually one works out for life, or there's an infinite number of planets, or an infinite, or, or our universe is infinitely large, or something. You have to rely on infinities to make a tiny probability work. When you deal with infinities, the big problem is anything is possible. Mm. And, and that leads to some very disturbing ideas. So, for example... If I've got an infinite universe or an infinite number of universes, then life not only evolved once, it evolved an infinite number of times. And if life evolves and produces complex beings, one thing we know complex beings like to do is run simulations. Because we are complex beings and we run simulations of everything, you know, climate, Big Bang, all that kind of stuff. And because you've got this infinite universe with infinite possibilities, it's more possible that we're one of those simulations than that wow. we're <laughs> And he says, that's very disturbing. And he says he doesn't have an answer for this. Wow. <laughs> and, and that's the problem. As soon as you start saying, as soon as you start believing, believing in infinite, infinities or near infinities to explain away the design you see in nature, then anything's possible. And that leads to some very, very dark ideas. <laughs> Yeah, I like that. I, I hadn't heard of that. that yeah, hey, he's, got a very, he's got a very interesting book called Seeking God in Science. Um, and basically what he's saying as an atheist is, I don't agree with these intelligent design people, but they deserve a fair hearing because there are some things that their view explains better. Uh, uh, and so even though I don't agree with him, I think they deserve a fair hearing. And he actually helps intelligent designers out. He tries to show them how they could make their uh, view more philosophically sound. Scientifically, mm. it's you know pretty sound. But he actually explains how they could make their view more So it's a fantastic read. Here's this atheist trying to help out the intelligent designers because, like me, he believes that if we want to serve – find the truth, we have to explore all possibilities, even the ones we don't like. Yeah, Thomas Nagel just came out with a book. Yep. Um, are, you, are you familiar with his book? 
Yeah, Mind and Cosmos. I reviewed it on my blog, uh, and I reviewed oh. Seeking God in Science on my blog too. Uh, and Mind and Cosmos is really interesting because basically what he does is he shows the problem and doesn't give a solution. You know, okay. uh, he says basically there's no way evolution can account for consciousness. It'll never happen. And he, you know, and, and I obviously I'm predisposed to agree with him, but I think he makes a very strong case that yeah, there's no way evolution could ever explain consciousness. And since consciousness is probably the major, in his mind anyway, the major um, um, property <laughs> of people and, and therefore the biosphere that you know the biosphere evolved to create consciousness in his view, then any theory that can't explain consciousness is hopeless. And so we should should abandon any kind of naturalistic, uh, materialistic view of evolution and replace it with what he calls a teleological view, which is, you know, that maybe evolution occurred with with a purpose in mind uh, or something like that. Uh, And so, so, but he doesn't, he he specifically says, I don't know what this teleological view of evolution looks like, (laughs) but it's necessary. That's amazing. That is it was really neat uh, when you when you have that. I guess it's 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 as you you learn more about uh, the scientific evidence and the uh, scientific tools in it get better. I guess it, it just is really showing uh, just some of the major problems. I guess with the, with the naturalistic account. Yeah, you know, and I I say this on my blog, and I don't mean to offend people, but I do really I don't understand how anyone can be a scientist and be a naturalist. A materialist. I can I can see someone who's a scientist and an evolutionist. I would say that they're barking up the wrong tree, but I can understand that. Sure. But right. the only way you can get evolution to work is to have some sort of supernatural power behind it. You know, so huh. I just don't see how anyone <laughs> could be a scientist and a materialist. But obviously, there are lots of scientists who are materialists. So I just don't understand. Well, let me ask you this: Do you do you think a big reason of that too? And I don't say this to be rude, but just just a total ignorance of, of philosophy. I'm, I'm not sure. You know, I, you know, the problem is I worked with, with atheists who, who have PhDs and are pretty bright fellows, and we had deep philosophical discussions and deep you know, uh, scientific discussions and so forth. I'm not sure it's an ignorance. I think it's more, you know, certain starting assumptions can be incredibly powerful. Um, sure, that's true. Uh, and and I think that's the more issue. There, you know, there are some people who are who hold on to their starting assumptions very, very strongly, uh, and they sort of shape the evidence they see to be consistent with their starting assumptions. At least early on in my life, and I can't necessarily say I'm like this today, but at least early on in my life, I was willing to let my initial assumptions go if I saw good evidence to the contrary. And I still hope I do that, but, you know, as you get older, <laughs> I think you're less inclined to do that. <laughs> but when I was young, and so that's why I think we went from atheism to, to believing in God to eventually Christianity, because I was willing to hold my starting assumptions a little more loosely. Sure. Uh, I think part of it, you know, there are a lot of people who simply aren't willing to let go of their starting assumptions, no matter how much they have, no matter what level of mental gymnastics they have to do to keep right. what they see consistent with them. Yeah, we, we have a young lady. I'm, I'm a, the chapter director for Ratio Christi at uh, Winthrop University. And we have a young lady there that, is a, that has been an atheist. And um, we decided to, to live stream the debate between Ken Ammon 
and Bill Nye, uh, kind of in the student center there in uh, uh-huh. Winthrop's the most liberal university in the Carolinas. Um, but she came down and she watched the debate and, um, you know, she wasn't very happy with a lot of the things she saw. But uh, I talked with her a little bit and, and we dealt with some of the objections she had. And I gave her a uh, guys who are in church book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Right. And uh, she read that at the first three or four chapters. And she came back and she said, you know, I'm not an atheist anymore. Uh, she says, yeah, I, I don't believe in Jesus, of course. Um she says, but I, I, I do see these arguments for the fine-tuning, the kalam, the, you know, the origin. And, uh, I mean, I was floored, you know, that she had said that, uh, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I think if if you can give people good reasons, um, of course, not apart from, from the Holy Spirit, uh, but, uh, you know, that then, yeah, minds can be changed through some of these, through some of these good arguments. Oh, I, yeah, I think it certainly certainly my mind was changed, you know, uh, that way, and I think other people's minds have been over the years as well. All right. Let's uh, let me do this real quick. Uh, what time did you want to open up the, the the line for people to call in? Call oh, whenever you want. Okay. So if anybody, I'm happy to take as many questions as people have. Okay, great. Yeah. So if anyone wants to call in, the number is seven six zero. Five four two three nine zero seven seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven, and we're going to be taking your calls here. We're going to take a break here, probably about ten minutes. Take a two-minute break, uh, but for now, let's. Uh, I guess let's keep uh, going with this. Um, what are maybe you could explain a little with the origin of the universe in the young Earth view, and maybe kind of the older, I guess, the older Earth view. Uh, yeah, I, I think the thing that separates young Earth creationists from everybody else in the origin of the universe is that obviously we see it as, as supernatural, and I think most old Earth creationists do as well. At least the very beginning, God, you know, created out of nothing. Um, but where we really diverge from everyone else is we believe that there was a geometry to the universe's expansion. Um, you know, when people imagine the universe expanding, they imagine it expanding the way everything we see expands, which is spherically, you know. Uh, so, you know, if I drop a pebble in a, in a, on a lake, the uh, ripples will expand outward radio in, in a circle. Put that in three dimensions, things just expand outward in a sphere. That's what we're used to. That's not what the Big Bang is. That's not what the Big Bang believes. The Big Bang believes that the universe is everything there is and everything there is expands. So as a result, there's no geometry to it because there's no edge to the universe. Uh, so uh, in the end, the universe isn't expanding into something. Therefore, there's no way to define a geometry to the expansion. Young Earthers believe there's a geometry to the expansion, that the expansion of the universe is spherical, and the Earth is somewhere towards the center of that sphere, not necessarily directly at the center, but closer to the center than most of the rest of the universe. And that leads to a radically different view of how what the universe is like today and how things work today. Uh, so, you know, for example, uh, an old earther believes the reason we can see light from billions of light years away is because the lights had billions of light years or billions of years to travel here. Uh, however, from the young earth creationist perspective, the reason we can see light from billions of light years away is because of the consequence of the spherical expansion. Uh, when you have a universe expanding spherically, the standard 
equations of relativity, especially using the Carmeli Car uh, cosmology, tell us that areas near the center of the universe, time passes very slowly. And the farther you get away from the center of the universe, the faster time passes. Um, so in the end, the reason we can see light from billions of light years away is because time is ticking so slowly here. Time's only been ticking here for a few thousand years, but it's been ticking so quickly on the edges of the universe, and the farther out you go, the faster it ticks, that we've, our time is slow enough to allow all this light to have gotten here. Um, and so that's a very big difference, and it all comes from the idea that the universe has a geometry to its expansion. As soon as you fix a geometry to the way the universe is expanding, you come up with a radically different view of what the universe is like. Okay. Wow. That is that is that is amazing. Um, yeah. There's let me, a, let me there's a book. Oh, go, go there's, a bo there's a book called uh, Starlight Time and the New Physics by John Hardin. Yeah. John Hardin, the cosmologist, and he you know he does a really good job of explaining how this works. Um, and in his view, the, this, this view of how the universe expanded and started and everything is much more consistent with the observable data than the Big Bang. Most old Earth creationists and theistic evolutionists agree with the Big Bang, but the Big Bang has all sorts of crazy assumptions in it that are probably not correct, almost certainly not correct. Like the Big Bang, you have to, the fundamental thing you have to believe in the Big Bang is on the large enough scale, the universe is basically the same everywhere. That's called the cosmological principle. And the fact is there's no, no observations that support that. All our observations say precisely the opposite, that the universe is very clumpy. <laughs> Uh, but wow. you have to believe the universe is homogeneous if you uh, want to do the Big Bang. Uh, so, you know, that's one of them. You have to uh, make absur this absurd idea that the vast majority – I mean, most people don't understand this. If you believe in the Big Bang, you have to believe that the vast majority of the universe is made up of stuff, stuff we've never detected and don't understand. You know, almost 95% wow. of the universe is either dark matter or dark energy. Dark matter, we don't know what it is. We've never observed it. Dark energy, we don't even have a good theory <laughs> as to what dark energy is. But we have to believe that 95% of the universe is either dark matter or dark energy to believe in the Big Bang. And, you know, as a scientist, it's awfully hard for me to believe that I'm using science when I'm saying 95% of the universe is stuff we've never detected and have no idea what it really is. <laughs> that is good. Uh, with with uh, one, one last question before I go to the, the one with um, the other one I was going to ask. Between, like, Dr. Hartnett and Dr. Russell Humphreys, and uh -huh. I guess you could put Dr. Lyle in there, yeah. What are some of the differences in the models? Are they, is it all kind of the same model that they're all working on, or is there, there different models amongst the young Earth creationists? Uh, no, I, you know, I think the Hardin and Humphreys, John Hardin and Russell Humphreys, their models are most the most similar. They both use the idea that time behaves radically differently depending on gravitational fields and so forth to come up with you know different views. Um, of how the universe started. Dr. Humphrey's uh, model is a little more, requires a little more exotic nature than Hartnett's model. Hartnett's model uses a lot more standard, co and, and you expect that because Dr. Hartnett actually is a cosmologist, you know. Dr. Oh, Humphrey is huh? a nuclear physicist, and so, you know, not to 
say that's bad or anything, but you know, because he's a true hardness of cosmologist, he uses more standard cosmology. Uh, at least, you know, um, cosmology that's been discussed in the literature, let's say. <laughs> uh, right. But, you know, Humphreys uses a bit more exotic processes. Like, for one point, you know, God has to take the water that's making up the universe and split it into a big sphere near the center and a, and a, small, sh- a small sort of um, shield near the outside. And that's something that Hartnett doesn't need. Uh, and so that's one less sort of supernatural step required in creation and scientists typically like to avoid supernatural if it's, if, if you if you can uh because in the end it's you know harder to model <laughs> sure. um, so uh so they both use some of the same ideas but they have sort of a different setup now lyle i'm not sure that lyle has a cosmology lyle <clears throat> excuse me has a explanation for why we can see distant starlight and with all due respect to him, because he is a, an intelligent fellow who probably knows more physics, uh, he's probably forgotten more physics than I'll ever know, so I'm not trying to say he doesn't know what he's talking about. I just find right. his explanation to be wanting, uh, because basically he's saying the reason we can see, the it boils down to the reason we can see light from distant galaxies is light actually travels at an infinite speed, but only towards Earth. <laughs> So the only way you'll never be ever ever be able to detect the speed of light towards Earth, uh, it's a preferred reference frame, uh, okay. and I don't like preferred reference frames. I think the general relativity is fairly well established, and it says you can't have preferred reference frames. Um, so his uh, view on light travel, I think. To me, at least, it violates relativity, so I tend to not like it. Now, he'll tell you it doesn't violate relativity, and so, you know, it would take two physicists arguing, and you'd get bored really quickly. (laughs) But, you know, I don't think it's consistent with relativity. So I tend to see that as totally separate. Okay, and then the the old Earth view, so someone like uh, Dr. Hugh Ross, how would they... Yeah, so they they conform basically to the Big Bang because there's no... You know, uh, there's there's no reason for them not to. Uh, you know, in the end, they believe the Big Bang didn't start off as an accident. You know, it was God speaking the universe into existence. But after right. that, you know, he spoke the universe into existence, and it basically evolved the way uh, it expanded and so forth. Uh, I wouldn't say evolved because they wouldn't use that term. But it expanded and developed uh, in the basic way that the uh, Big Bang says it did, and they and I, and 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 I, and I can understand this. They actually say the Big Bang is a strong argument for creation, because of right. course it has the universe starting, you know, has the universe with a beginning, yeah. and that's the fundamental aspect. Uh, so you know, they they either see the Big Bang as very helpful to Christianity, not harmful. And and I and I would agree with them basically that there's nothing harmful about the Big Bang to Christianity. I just think it's not the most scientifically reasonable explanation for how things work. Yeah, let me, let me ask you. I've, I've thought about this before, and uh, it seems to me that kind of what you have was. Uh, the atheist uh, or naturalist, I should say, just kind of really grabbed onto the Big Bang uh, because it seemed to kind of do away with the need for God. Uh, but then as, as science has gotten better and more advanced and we're, we're learning more things, I think what's happened is, is it's really given strong uh, support 
that the universe began to exist, and then you have the Kalam and that, and therefore um, it really does lead to a, uh, give good credence to a theistic view. And so the, a lot of Christians have just grabbed onto the Big Bang and uh, are, are using that as, as good solid argumentation, uh, not just for the origin of the universe, but of course, you know, for some of the attributes of God as well. Uh, and, and now it seems a lot of the atheists are kind of trying to back away from from that and go to or, or at least come up with other explanations like multiverse and the cyclical universe. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I'm not sure I know of any atheist who believes in a cyclical universe because, uh, you know, I think, you know, um, what was his name? Hoyle really, 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 really tried to make that work, and it just doesn't work. <laughs> uh, okay. So uh, uh, I'm not sure any any atheist I know of, anyway, is uh, into a cyclical universe. Uh, I think what most atheists want to do with the Big Bang now is develop it into a multiverse situation where you know you have this happening all the time as a matter of course and universes are probably still spawning every microsecond and so forth uh, uh, because that allows them then to get around you know because I think when you put the the Big Bang with the fine-tuning that you see in the universe those are two really really strong uh, arguments yeah. for the existence of God <clears throat> and at least you can get rid of the fine-tuning argument if you uh, um, if you postulate a multiverse um, and I also think what, you know, a lot of atheists who, who you know, uh, and most atheists I think are, are big, uh, believe in the Big Bang, uh, but I think atheists who are, are strong supporters of the Big Bang, what they'll tend to do is show why, you know, they would use a theological argument to say why God wouldn't do it this way, you know. Right. <laughs> so, you know, so yeah, it had a beginning, as Richard Dawkins says, the fact that the universe had a beginning isn't a point in, in the Bible's favor. You had a 50-50 chance of being right. Either the universe did or didn't have a beginning. The Bible just happened to have, be on the right side of the issue and had a 50% chance of getting right, and it got it right. So in his mind, that doesn't give evidence for God. And in fact, if you look at the universe, it's not the kind of universe a God would design. You know? <laughs> so I think that's how most uh, big bangers who are atheists would try and get away from 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 you know concluding God from the Big Bang. Okay, great. Well, let's do this. Let's take a two two minute break or so. Uh, give people a chance to call in. Uh, the number again is seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. Now it never fails. Someone always calls with a great question and a good discussion with the last five minutes of the show to go. <laughs> Don't do that. Uh, we want you to call in, and we have plenty of time to be able to discuss uh, some of these topics. I know that we have several people listening that have been uh, really influenced by Dr. Weil's work with uh, his uh, science textbooks, and uh, now is your chance to, to call in and talk to Dr. Weil, and uh, we'll go ahead and take a break for about two minutes, and we will be right back. This is John MacArthur inviting you to join me for Portraits of Grace. Men, have you ever been at work and realized you forgot to shave? Well, that's a good illustration of what it means to hear God's Word and forget to respond. James said, if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he's like a man who looked at his natural face in a mirror. 
This is not some casual glance either, but a careful, observant stare. Yet even a long, hard look is worthless if you walk away and forget what you saw. If you fail to respond because the image reflected in the mirror will soon fade when you don't make the corrections. Perhaps you've been putting off something that you know God's Word is instructing you to do. If so, don't delay. This is John MacArthur trusting that you'll look into the Word of God and become a true portrait of grace. Here's a Renewing Your Mind Minute with Dr. R.C. Sproul. The church, ultimately, in which I am called to be a member, is what we call the invisible church, whose members include every person who has ever been a believer in Christ. Martin Luther is a member of my congregation. St. Augustine is a member of my church. And when we come and worship together as a community on Sunday morning, we're not just having fellowship with each other, but we have a mystical union with Christ, and Christ has the mystical union with all of his people. So by virtue of our communion with Christ, we also are in communion with all of the saints, with all of the people of God. It transcends space. It transcends time. For today's special offer, visit renewingyourmind.org. All right, welcome back to the show, and we have uh, Dr. Jay Weil on, and we are looking at the uh, topics of creation uh, and evolution. Very interesting stuff, and uh, really enjoying this. You can find our uh, Facebook page at uh, Theology Matters with the Palouse, and on there you'll find several of our podcasts and our shows that we've done in the past. Uh, we've done several debates and hope to have some more coming up here in the future. We've done, you know, Catholic versus Protestant. Uh, had a Mormon apologist on to debate a friend of mine on the nature of God. Uh, I've done eight, several atheist versus theist debates. So you can find those uh, on our page. So be sure to check some of those out. So what I was wanting to do, uh, Dr. Weil, uh, I have a clip, a short clip of Neil deGrasse Tyson, and he's kind of, uh, he's talking about ID. And I wanted just to, to play this clip for a minute or so and would love to get your response. Is that okay? Okay, sure. Uh, I want to do it just a fast tirade on stupid design. And uh, this will be fast. Uh, look at all the things that just want to kill us, okay? Uh, most planet orbits are unstable. Uh, star formation is completely inefficient. Most places in the universe will kill life instantly, Instantly. The people who say, oh, the forces of nature are just right for life. Excuse me. <laughs> just look at the volume of the universe where you can't live. You will die instantly. That is not, that's, not, that's not what I call the Garden of Eden. All right? Uh, uh, galaxy orbits that we orbit once every couple hundred million years, you're bound to come close to a supernova that will wipe out your ozone layer and kill everybody on the surface who doesn't otherwise have dark skin because your high-energy rays will give you skin cancer. Um, we're on a collision course with the Andromeda galaxy. Gone is this beautiful spiral that we have. And, of course, we're on a one-way expanding universe as we wind down to oblivion as the temperature of the universe asymptotically pro. Okay, Dr. Wow, I was just, just curious to get some of your thoughts on that. You kind of hear some of the mockery and... Yeah. 
And uh, so, well, you know, I think I think that's a great illustration of what I was saying before. You know, DeGrassi Tyson obviously is a big supporter of the Big Bang, and he's basically saying, yeah, the Big Bang happened, and yeah, the universe had a beginning, but this clearly isn't the kind of universe that God would make, because in the end, most of the universe is inhospitable to life and so forth. So, you know, I think that's exactly what I was what I was uh, talking about before. And of course, you know, the problem with that idea uh, is that you know the universe is not supposed to be populated everywhere. It's only supposed to be populated where God wants population. <laughs> Obviously, he created this oasis in the middle of a very hostile universe specifically for us. So to me, the very fact that the rest of the universe is hostile, but Earth is not, speaks very strongly for the special creation of Earth. Right. Yeah, I agree. Um, uh, yeah, and, you know, I think in the end, you know, obviously... Tyson's not a very good resource uh, for much outside of his specialty. I mean, if you watch the Cosmos thing he's been narrating, it is one does some of the worst hack jobs on history that I've ever seen. Yeah. You know, uh, and yeah, so you know when it comes to and you know, and there's another clip out there of Tyson saying philosophers are all you know philosophy is useless. People shouldn't do philosophy. It's stupid. You know that's of course nonsense. <laughs> At one time, science was philosophy. <laughs> so yeah. you know, um, so you know, yeah, I don't think Tyson is a, is a reasonable voice. I mean, there are there are atheists who are very reasonable voices in this origins issue. Tyson's not one of them. Yeah, uh, the atheist uh, Massimo Pigliucci just wrote an article actually taking uh, taking Neil deGrasse Tyson to, to task on on his uh, disdain. Or philosophy, so that's that's yeah. good good points there. Um, I guess let's let's look at the origin of life, kind of comparing the models. Okay. Uh, let me real quickly. Uh, I'm getting the low battery signal on this phone. So yeah, folks, what well, he's uh, uh, hooking up his cell phone there and, and getting that ready. Um, have some interesting shows again, kind of coming up in the future. Uh, we hope you guys will will, will stick with us. Um, trying to get another debate on the topic of annihilationism, and uh, had our our friend uh, Chris Date and my my good friend Mike Willenborg do a debate on this topic, and uh, it was a it had a had a good turnout. Uh, it was one of the most downloaded shows we've listened to. And uh, since then, I've been in, in contact with uh, Mr. Nate and with another gentleman, and we are hoping to to be able to get that uh, debate underway. I need to talk with them both and, and try and finalize some details. But uh, we got that, and then some some other things coming up. So hopefully that will that will come to pass. So let's see if Dr. Weil is back with okay, us. Okay, sorry, sorry about <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, Okay. <laughs> Technical difficulties, so I'm back here. <laughs> so, yeah, great. So the the original life. Um, maybe you could talk to us a little bit about the the naturalistic view and kind of the yeah. the, the ID or creation view. Well, yeah, in the in the naturalistic view for the origin of life, uh, there are all sorts of different models uh, because we don't, from a naturalistic point of view they don't have a good idea of how life could begin. You know, uh, most of us are taught the old Stanley Miller story that, 
you know, in some warm little pond, amino acids uh, formed by random chemical reactions between gases that was ex excited by uh, a lightning, and those amino acids eventually formed proteins, which eventually figured out how to make DNA, and, and that's how we got life. But, you know, for the last 40 years, no one's believed that because there are all sorts of chemical impossibilities. So over the years, several other models have been developed, each of them facing what I consider to be insurmountable problems for taking non-living chemicals and making something living. Uh, and, you know, I think uh, um, William Dembski says this best. You know that a, uh, a scientific idea is having real problems when there are multiple models that try to explain it and none of the models work. <laughs> and that's where we are with the origin yeah. of life from a naturalistic standpoint. Basically, they believe there's just some incredibly lucky coincidence that caused some kind of chemical reaction uh, some models say that metabolism started first, that uh, the, the chemical reactions were able to draw, to convert energy into powering more chemical reactions, and that eventually formed life. Others believe that genetic information was first, probably didn't start with DNA, probably started with RNA. Uh, some people believe that it was uh, uh, crystal defects, that chemicals um, that were riding on the back of uh, defects in crystals or what started life. I mean, there are just all these different views. And the problem is there are chemical issues with all of them. Um, and so I think, you know, even though anybody that's honest about the origin of life would say this is one of the great unsolved mysteries from the naturalistic standpoint. Um, from the creationist standpoint, of course, uh, life was, was created supernaturally in several different basic forms. Uh, and over time, those basic forms adapted uh, to, see, to, to produce what we see today. In the intelligent design view, uh, there's a wide range of views in the intelligent design view about the origin of life. Uh, people like Michael Behe, for example, think that a single organism was created by God that has all the information necessary to produce all the evolution that, that happened later on. So Behe okay. would say we're probably all descended from the single a uh, common ancestor, but God front-loaded all the information necessary into that organism so that it would naturally produce what we see today. Um, other uh, in intelligent design people would say that, you know, uh, 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 God didn't, didn't, God created a single life form and then, you know, manipulated information as it went along the evolutionary path. And then others would say that, you know, there probably isn't as much common ancestry as evolutionists want to believe. There's probably some, but it's not nearly as much as most evolutionists want to believe. And they conform more to the idea, and Michael Denton would probably be the best one on this, that at least in his early writings, that, uh, that there were certain types of creatures that were created, and those types of creatures uh, then, you know, uh, did a little more evolution as time went on. Okay, that's that's good. And then, so let me ask you. So, with like, for example, the progressive creationist view, because that's oh yeah, for I guess in evangelicalism, that's probably the most popular uh, old Earth view is the progression view. How how do they deal with the origin of life? I know Doctor Fuzzerano uh, wrote a book on it. I haven't haven't read it yet, but I'm mm -hmm. sure you know. Right. Well, you know, in the in the progressive creationist view, uh, the progression is, you know, God creates 
life at some level play around for a while and then creates a new level of life. What's that play around for a while and then creates a new level of life. So in the progressive gracious view, God creates throughout the history of the planet. Uh, and what, what evolutionists interpret as evolutionary steps are really more created steps that God created. Uh, and, you know, because these steps don't seem to be connected with, with transitional fossils, it makes sense then that they aren't the product of evolution, but are instead, you know, discrete creation steps that, uh, that God made. Uh, so, you know, the origin of life really didn't have, life didn't have a single origin in the, pre, in the progressive creation view. It had multiple origins because every time God created a new level of life, that's a new origin for that particular level. Okay, so even even full-grown man then as well would be the same. The same would be okay. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah, yeah, like so, God creates the simplest cell to begin with, and lets them play around for a while. So some sort of bacterial kind of life lets them play around for a while, and then a few hundred million years later, He creates uh, a more complex single cell life, something like a protozoan or something like that. And that continually happens. So at one point, for example, he creates primates, uh, the chimpanzees and the gorillas and so forth. And then in his next step, he creates man. So man's an individual creation, just as, you know, lots of mammals were independently created at the same time and lots of birds were independently created at the same time. But they happen, you know, at each step along the progress. And what's really interesting about his view is he thinks the days of Genesis, of course, are eons of time over which these progressive creation events occurred. But what he says is these days aren't discrete. They tend to overlap. So you don't have just plants forming on day three. They actually form a little bit on day two, towards the end of day two, throughout day three, and then even into day four and day five. You know, wow. day three is just where this distribution is kind of centered. So, you know, just like we would say, the, like if I have a, a, a classroom situation in sixth grade, sixth grade, most of the kids are 12. So we might say sixth graders are 12 years old, knowing for a full well that there are some 11-year-olds and some 13-year-olds and maybe even some 14-year-olds. But because the majority are 12, we just say sixth graders are 12 years old. In the same way, ah. plants were created on day three really only means that's when a lot of plants were created. But they were probably created on days two, four, and five as well. Okay. Let me ask you some of the, some of the issues maybe you could outline with the naturalistic account of the origin of life. I think you touched on it a little bit, but kind of give us maybe some bullet points. What is the problem uh, for the naturalist as far as the the origin of life. I'm going through uh, the book uh, Discovering Intelligent Design right now uh, with mm-hmm. a group of homeschool students, and it's put out by the Discovery Institute. Really good book. One of the things they say is basically when you say the, the origin of life, you're talking about the origin of information. Talk, talk to us about that. Yeah, that's a real popular theme with intelligent design folks. Obviously, any kind of living system requires a certain amount of information. Uh, because living systems have certain things in common. They can all take energy from an outside source and convert it into energy that they use, right? Now, that's a process. That's something you have to make. Well, so that takes some sort of instruction booklet 
that takes some sort of set of instructions, which means uh, information. Uh, all, thing, all living things have to reproduce. Well, the process of reproduction requires information. So all the things that living organisms do require information, whereas with non-living organisms, you don't really need any information, right, because there aren't any processes that they have to do that require set steps and, you know, in a, in a particular, you know, um, process. So in the end, one of the big differences between life and non-life is life uses information, non-life doesn't. And the problem is we sort of naturally understand that the information doesn't tend to come out of non-information. You know, there's this old, this thought that, you know, a million monkeys typing on a million typewriters for a million years will eventually produce the selected works of Shakespeare. But everybody knows that's not true. You can have an infinite number of monkeys typing on an infinite number of typing, and you'll never produce the completed works of Shakespeare because information doesn't come from non-information. Um, so, so in the end... Um, uh, and in fact, I think there's, there's a really good, uh, I can't remember the exact quip, but one of them is, you know, the Internet has shown us that a million monkeys typing on a million keyboards is not ever going to produce a collected work of William Shakespeare. <laughs> um, but, but, but anyway, so that's, that's from the intelligent design standpoint, that's the big issue. Where did this information come from? And you can go straight to, for example, the DNA, which is, you know, the molecule that contains all the a lot of the information, at least, that you need for life, um, uh, it has a particular syntax. You know, it, it's, it has a particular way of expressing information. That way of expressing information has to be read by the cell. You know, and so all these things have to come into being in some way. Uh, and whenever we see information, it always tends to degrade if it does anything. You know, so, you know, if I'm talking to you over this phone, the information that's coming out of my mouth gets transmitted into electromagnetic signals, which then bounce off a few satellites or something like that, and end up coming into your, your receiver, and then get translated back into information. Well, the best you can ever hope for is that my information won't be degraded in any way. But you can never expect my information to be improved on by this process. <laughs> Because right. there's no way I can I can improve on information with a natural process, um, and I and, you know so what's more likely to happen is there's a hiccup in the satellite, there's a, a, a fault in my uh, my phone circuitry or something like that, and the information I'm giving to you gets degraded. Uh, that's the more likely scenario. So when we see information it tends to be degraded, it doesn't tend to create itself from non-information. And so that's the big deal to the intelligent design person. As a chemist, I would actually go a bit farther than that, though. And I would say okay. that if you, look, if you look chemically at non-living things and living things, even aside from information, non-living chemicals have different characteristics than chemicals working together in a living organism. Um, they, you know... For example, the proteins that supervise most of the chemical reactions that go on in our body, they are highly specific, very, uh, they're shaped exactly to do their job. They have different ways of either slowing down or speeding up, uh, depending on, on what they need to do and so forth. When I look at non-living systems, I don't see any of that. What I see is one kind of chemical that basically behaves the same kind of way the whole time. Um, so from a chemical standpoint, I think molecules that 
interactiform living creatures are fundamentally different than the molecules that uh, interact in non-living things. Um, and go ahead. Oh yeah, no, I was just saying that's. I, I like that. I like how you explain that. Yeah. Maybe maybe talk to us a little bit about some of the differences uh, between here the terms micro and macro evolution. I know some some creationists hate it when you use those terms, but uh, explain maybe what what that is exactly. Well, you know, and the first thing to understand is microevolution and macroevolution are not creationist terms. They are evolutionist terms. These are terms developed by evolutionists. Uh, so they're standard terms. You find them in the in the in the in the scientific literature all of the time. Um, microevolution is the kind of adaptation that we typically see uh, in a relatively short time scale. So you know, if I look at, for example, um, uh, finches that live on the Galapagos Islands, you can actually show that during times of drought, the average beak size of these French finches decreased, but the strength of the beaks increased on average. And I can see this if the drought lasts only a order of 10 years or so. Uh, if, a, if, if it's unusually wet for on the order of 10 years, I can watch that same finch population, their beaks get more slender and longer because they're adapting to different food sources. That's microevolution, kind of evolution that's very well understood. The fact is, in all the finches, there are genes that produce long beaks and genes that produce um, short, stout beaks. And if the finches that happen to have the short, stout beaks uh, are the ones that tend to get more food, they're the ones that tend to survive, so they have more offspring. So in the end, more finches have short stout beaks. On the other hand, if the ones that happen to produce long, uh, thin, uh, long, uh, uh, delicate beaks from the same genetics, if they produce, if they're if they're better at getting a food, they're the ones that are going to survive. So microevolution is adaptation within a particular genome. So all the information is there in the genome. It's just being arranged differently, and if it's arranged in such a way that the organism is more likely to survive, that tends to become the dominant trait in the population. Uh, and, you know, microevolution is very well understood, and it can be documented both in the laboratory and in nature, no problem at all. Macroevolution is when organisms change something in their genome so that they produce something novel, something different. You know, so, for example, fish evolving into amphibians. That's macroevolution because we go from, you know, a genome that produces gills to one that produces lungs, right? That's a fundamental novel difference. Uh, and so that's macroevolution. And the problem with macroevolution is it's not understood. We don't have a good genetic mechanism for how it works. We certainly don't see any really strong fossil evidence that it ever happened, um, and the fundamental problem is it involves a, fun, a, a big change in knowledge to the genome. It involves taking some information from the genome and altering it in a way so as to make something truly novel. And we don't know how to understand how that could work either. Uh, and, you know, most evolutionists would admit that we don't have the details of that worked out. They probably wouldn't be so strong as to say we don't know how it happens. 
But most honest evolutionists will at least say, yeah, we haven't worked out the details as to how this happens because it's hard to understand how you can take an existing genome and produce something truly novel. Uh, but that's macroevolution, and that's what we have really no evidence for and no good mechanism for. So when you see uh, and when you hear evolutionists all the time, you hear like Dr. Tyson and them saying, um, you know, you, you creationists are just a bunch of idiots because we can see evolution happening before our eyes. What do they mean then? What are they, what are they talking about? Well, they're always talking about microevolution, and no creationist I know of disputes that microevolution happens uh, and that microevolution happens before our eyes. So, yeah, we see evolution happening before our eyes, but it's always microevolution. It's always um, adaptation within the limits of a genome. We've never, ever seen some genome producing something truly novel. Uh, so, and that's what macroevolution is. So whereas we see microevolution all the time, we don't see macroevolution. That's kind of this equivocation on the term evolution. It's when you have... Yeah, uh, and, this you is know, real, and this is real common, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's real common. Like, you know, uh, uh, a lot of folks who, especially ones who are wanting to be less than honest about things, are going to say, yeah, we see microevolution, therefore macroevolution happens. But I don't know very many evolutionists, at least not the ones I read, that really believe macroevolution is just a lot of microevolution. I mean, that kind of wow. that idea kind of went along the wayside 20, 30 years ago when we started really understanding genetics. Uh, and most evolutionists that I read in the literature anyway understand there has to be some fundamental difference between how microevolution happens and how macroevolution happens. Uh, and so whereas 30 years ago, evolutionists probably would have said the only difference between microevolution and macroevolution is time scale. If you let microevolution happen long enough, you'll eventually produce macroevolution. I would say that the majority of evolutionists would not agree with that statement these days. Wow. Because they recognize that it has to have be a fundamentally different mechanism. Yeah, so you kind of hear, like I heard the analogy of um, you know, so the person standing in a room can't get to the other side in one, you know, one jump, but uh, mm -hmm. with several steps, <laughs> then then they can. Yeah, and, and that's Richard saying, Dawkins' point of view, you know, in his book, Climbing Mountain Improbable, that's what he says. Yeah, you can't go from no eyes to eyes, but you can go from no eyes to a, a couple of cells that, that detect light to a few more cells that detect light to those cells put in a slight concavity, you know, so that the light has to be a little focused and eventually produce an eye. Uh, and, you know, I, I think, you know, that sort of gradualist view of evolution is not very popular these days. I mean, it's popular among a lot of evolutionary apologists, but in the scientific literature you certainly don't see it. Uh, wow. Because, you know, they understand that, you know, if, if the gradualist view of evolution was right, then the fossil record ought to be filled with transitional forms, and we just don't see that. Uh, so yeah, you see more and more of them. Like, yeah, you see more and more of them. Like doctors oh. trying to get away and say, "Oh yeah, well the fossil record is insignificant. It doesn't matter. We don't need. We don't need it." Mm -hmm. And uh, you know the 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 other issues. But uh, maybe just real quickly, could you talk about the difference, uh, like with Dawkins and and Dr. Gold? Um, because sometimes I think people just hear that you know the word evolution, they think it's just this monolithic scientific oh, theory. Um, what are what were some of the debates or the the, the issues surrounding uh, Dr. Goldview and Dr. Dawkins? 
Yeah, and, and this is just like creationists have, there's a wide range of views among creationists. There's a wide range of views among evolutionists as well. You know, there are evolutionists that believe the vast majority of evolutionary innovation comes as a result of changes to the way an organism develops in the womb or in the egg. And these, this idea of mutations occurring, you know, in sort of the, you know, in, 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 in the later, the mutations affecting later stages of the development don't, aren't the fundamental drivers of evolution. It's the mutations that occur in the genes that guide how we develop in the egg or in the womb. Uh, and that's, a real popular view these days, uh, but it's only been around for maybe 20 years, 25 years. Um, so that's a real new view. Uh, the argument that was going on between Dawkins and Gould is Dawkins has this gradualistic view of evolution, that evolution happens in very, very small steps. Gould said, you know, the trade secret of paleontology is you don't see any transitional forms, or at least you don't see many transitional forms in the fossil record. So this idea that evolution happens in slow, small steps is not supported by the fossil record. So in Gould's mind, evolution has to happen in much larger leaps. So in the end, rather than, you know, one generation producing one mutation and then 100 generations later another mutation happens and then 100 generations later a third mutation happens. And once all three of those mutations happen, then something new arrives in the population, something, a new organ or a new process or something like that arrives in the population. In Gould's view, uh, there's this population that gets hit with a huge, huge rate of mutation, maybe because of increased radiation or increased chemical toxicity or something like that. And as a result, an enormous amount of mutations happen very quickly within one or two generations. And because of this, the vast majority of this population dies off because they can't stand the mutation. But those three mutations that produce this new novel thing just happen to occur in a few members of this population right away. And so in one generation, we get from not having gill lungs, say, to having rudimentary lungs. Just one generation or two generations do that rather than Dawkins' view where it takes, you know, maybe a million years worth of generations to get there. And then right. once, once, that, once that's done, the population stabilizes, and for a million years, nothing interesting happens. And then another big mutation event happens, which produces yet a new evolutionary innovation very quickly. And then, once again, things stabilize, and nothing interesting happens for another couple million years. So in the end, in Gould's view, in order to uh, uh, be consistent with the uh, fossil data, evolution happens in jumps and starts. It happens very quickly when it happens. But then it doesn't happen again for millions of years. Uh, and the convenient thing for the evolutionists in this framework is since, trans since the transitional forms only lasted for one or two generations, they're very unlikely to appear in the fossil record. <laughs> but because, you know, the stable forms of the animals existed for millions of years, that's what you're likely to find in the fossil record. So in Gould's view, evolution happens too quickly to be retained in the fossil record. Those uh, transitional forms don't live long enough to have a high probability of being fossilized. 
So, and, and what's interesting about that is if you ask Gould or somebody who follows Gould's view, why don't we see transitional forms in the fossil record? They'll say, well, it's because evolution happens too quickly to be fossilized. But if you ask them why we don't see macroevolution happening today, they'll say, well, that's because it happens too slowly <laughs> for it to be observable <laughs> to us. So it's the perfect theory because it happens too quickly yeah. to be fossilized, but too slowly to be observed. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, you know, it's a, the heads I win tells you lose type of a deal. I do think that that view, Gould's view, which is typically called punctuated equilibrium, is probably the more prevalent view today because I do think okay. most evolutionists are willing to admit that, yeah, the fossil record doesn't look anything like a slow, gradual evolution. Well, we are at the end of the show. Uh, it's been a, it's been a really good show. I'd love to get you on for part two. I'll, I'll get a hold of you. And maybe we can we oh, can sure. rearrange that uh, or arrange not that not rearrange. But uh, talk to us a little bit. Uh, take take a minute or two. Talk about uh, your books that you have going on. Your website. Mm -hmm. uh, your 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 blog and that. And, and we'll be sure to link to that also um, on our on our Facebook page. But but go ahead. Yeah, my website is www.drwile.com, uh, and you can click on blog and read my blog. It's got all sorts of nerdy stuff on it, um, and uh, uh, you can also find out about my new uh, books. You know, I've written a whole series of science textbooks for junior high and high school that have been out for many years, and they all start with exploring creation with. Um, but my latest endeavor has been writing a been writing an elementary science series. So it's oh, uh, wow. science for the K through six range, uh, and it's right. fundamentally different from my junior high high school science because it's uh, geared so that all K through six students, no matter their age, can all be working on the same book. So it's what we call a multi-grade approach to K through six education. Uh, it's separated out into distinct lessons. You know when to start and stop every day because it's contained in a lesson, and every lesson has a hands-on activity, uh, usually an experiment. Uh, and there are some wonderful experiments <laughs> in the books. Um, and uh, the overall framework of the books is we're introducing science concepts from a historical standpoint. So the first book is on the science of creation, and you learn a little bit about the science uh, of the things that were created in each Genesis day and so forth. And then the second book just starts with the ancient Greeks. It starts working forward in time, explaining scientific concepts as they were discovered in history. Great. That's that's wonderful. Yeah. I've got a little 14-month-old. I can't wait to start uh, getting her <laughs> on top of that stuff. I've really enjoyed your books. And uh, like I said, I just I really appreciate you because it's, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, I love young earth creationism, but sometimes I just feel like it's just represented so badly and it makes me cringe. And so it's, it's just, it's I really appreciate, you know, men like yourself. And uh, we gotta we gotta do this again for sure. Excellent, absolutely. I'll be happy to. All right. Well, we appreciate you coming on, and uh, we'll do it again. And uh, thank okay. your thank your wife for for allowing you to come on and and uh, <laughs> burn an hour and a half with us. Oh my pleasure. I'll, I'll let her know. So thank <laughs> you very right. much. All right, God bye -bye. bless. All right, folks, and we will be back again next week with another edition of Theology Matters. Uh, we appreciate you guys joining us. Go to our Facebook page, 
uh, Theology Matters uh, with the Palouse, and we will put a uh, link up to Dr. Weil's uh, blog and his website, and I uh, really encourage you guys to check out his book. It's got a lot of great stuff. So uh, until next week, God bless.